At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Y'all, please be seated and good morning. I wish that I had nothing in common with Jonah. I wish that when it comes to Jonah and his attitude that we see in this morning's Old Testament lesson that Tommy just read to us, I wish that I could say that I just can't relate. But alas, I can't. I wish I could say that, but I can't. As I was reflecting this past week on this sermon and considering the story of Jonah, my mind went to a situation that I experienced with my wife here in Austin, Texas, almost 20 years ago now. My wife, Bouquet, and I had just recently returned back to Austin from our three-year stint in Philadelphia where I attended seminary. We had, by this time, a couple of years of ministry experience under our belt, And here we were, right in the middle of a new church plant, a new church plant that was just getting its legs under it. This new church plant was 70% Hispanic, bilingual, urban, very diverse in terms of culture, and God was blessing it. Sunday after Sunday, about 100 people would gather around and take communion together knowing that they were the body of Christ Ivy League PhDs standing shoulder to shoulder with undocumented citizens becoming true friends in Christ. New ministries and nonprofits were popping up and getting started out of the bosom of this church. All sorts of good fruit was being born. But then the difficulty started. For reasons that even to this very day, I still do not completely understand, a small group of the core leadership of this little church plant began to find fault in my leadership. And they began to raise criticisms. And eventually, this small number of leaders would end up leaving the church altogether. And y'all, it hurt. It was painful. It was confusing. I couldn't understand what was going on. And I began to struggle not just with the people who left and the people who I felt hurt me and wounded me, but I also began to struggle with God. 
God, I said, I'm on your side. I've been sacrificing. I've worked hard. I've labored long. This is not right. This shouldn't happen. I don't know what you're doing here, God, but you're making a horrible mess of things. Have you ever been there? Maybe it's for you not about ministry. Maybe for you it's about family or finances. Maybe it's about children or grandchildren. It's about the things that you care about most deeply in this world. Maybe they've begun to suffer. Or maybe the Lord has taken them away from you and you find yourself thinking, how can this happen? Why this? Why me? Have you been there? If you have, guess what? If you have, guess what? You are in need of the audacious truth, the audacious words of Jonah 3 and 4 this morning. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Jonah says, this is exactly why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God, slow to, uh, a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, "Is it right for you to be angry?" When Jonah thinks about this wondrous thing that God has done with Assyria, he's outraged and offended. Assyria, one of the most brutal empires known in the history of mankind. Who were the Assyrians? Theologian Ray Bakke writes this, quote, the Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world. They were the most violent culture in the Middle East. The Assyrian army would, raise a, uh, would raid a village, put out the eyes of the oldest men, and murder the women and children in front of them so the blinded victims could hear the death cries of their families after stacking the bodies in streets like cordwood, the army would move to the next village, close quote. See, y'all, when the ancient Hebrews in Jonah's time, when they thought about the Assyrians and when they heard the names of Assyrian rulers, names like Shalmaneser IV, Tiglath III, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, all, about, all of whom we read about in books like First and Second. Kings, when they thought of those names, they were filled with the same kind of rage, the same kind of disgust, the same kind of hatred and loathing that you and I feel when we hear names like Hitler, Putin, or bin Laden. Who were the Assyrians? That is who they were. And in Jonah's mind, they obviously needed to be judged and destroyed, right? To Jonah's way of thinking, these enemies of Israel needed to be punished and obliterated and wiped off the face of the earth. But is that what God does? Does he wipe them off the face of the earth? Maybe he does something else. Maybe he institutes a policy of detainment and seeks to detain Assyria and keep them at arm's length from Israel is that what God does? 
No. Instead, what God does is astounding. He looks at this brutal, wicked, violent empire, and he lavishes them with his grace and mercy. He takes this murderous people and softens their hearts and begins to bring them to himself. The way God lavishes mercy on the Assyrians this morning, it's about as crazy as the way he lavishes mercy on those workers in today's gospel who showed up late but still received the same wages as the ones who clocked in first. Jonah witnesses the lavish mercy of this crazy God, and he becomes livid. How does this God of mercy, how does this God think about the Assyrians? Well, Psalm 87 tells us, listen to Psalm 87. It says, quote, I count Egypt and Babylon as among those who know me. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia in Zion, they were born. Um, excuse me, God, you count Babylon as among those who know you? Babylon, the superpower enemy of your people? Babylon is like Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany, second only perhaps to Assyria in its brutality and oppression. And God, you count them as your own? You see, there is something about this God that does not fit our calculus. Just like it didn't fit the calculus of those workers that we find in today's gospel story, those workers who showed up and clocked in early. And now I want to tell you about an experiment, an experiment having to do with monkeys. Quote, I think this is from Wikipedia. Quote, a few years ago, Sarah Brosnan and Franz Deval, two zoologists from Emory University, decided to do a study of the evolution of fairness, right? I mean, Jesus in the gospel doesn't seem to be very fair. And God dealing with the Assyrians doesn't seem to be very fair, especially if you ask Jonah. So these two researchers from Emory University, they decided to study the evolution of fairness. They wanted to explore where our distaste from unfair, for unfairness comes from. Is it, is it a cultural add-on or is it hardwired? To study this question, Brosnan and Vall designed an experiment using capuchin monkeys. Pairs of monkeys were placed in adjacent cages where they could see each other. The monkeys were uh, trained to take turns giving small granite rocks to their human handlers. Each time a monkey relinquished the rock, she would receive a piece of cucumber as a reward. Now, capuchins love cucumbers, so both monkeys found this arrangement satisfactory and handed over their rocks with enthusiasm. But then, the handler changed things up. After a few fair and even exchanges, the handler rewarded the first monkey with a chunk of cucumber as usual, but gave the second monkey a grape, the equivalent to fine caviar and wine in the monkey world. <laughs> Seeing that the game changed for the better, the first monkey picked up and very eagerly handed over another rock, expecting, of course, to receive a grape as well. But no, the handler gave her another piece of cucumber. 
To make things even worse, the handler gave the second monkey another grape for free. The results, which you can look up on YouTube, by the way, are striking. The first monkey just about lost her mind. Not only did she refuse to eat the cucumber, she hurled it at the handler's face. She then proceeded to bang herself against the bars of the cage, throw her remaining rocks in every direction, and make furious gestures at, at her grape-eating companion. The experiment has since been repeated using other primates, and the results have been astonishingly similar, close quote. You see, y'all, the expectation for fairness that we all have, it's hardwired into our brains. It's hardwired into our reality. We expect it. But look at God. Look at the God of our lessons today. He is a God of justice and fairness, yes, but today he shows us something better than fairness. It is called mercy. And sometimes it can make people angry. There's something about this God that did not fit Jonah's calculus, and it made Jonah angry. And there's so much more we could say about this Jonah story, about how Jonah was a nationalist and a self-righteous legalist, and about how this posture of his was making himself miserable. There's so much more we could say, but I want to jump to the main point, and I want to jump to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is found in our liturgy. It's appropriate that we're beginning a confirmation class this morning that's gonna last for several Sundays until we present folks to the bishop, God willing. And so it's appropriate that we're talking about the liturgy because the heart of the matter is found in our liturgy. Because if you ask the question, why is this God so strange? By the way, do you agree with me that this God is very strange? And if you ask the question, why? Why is this God so strange? Why does he employ fuzzy math? He can't even pay people properly. Why does he employ fuzzy math when he deals with people? Our Anglican liturgy gives us a hint. If you ask the question, why does this God bless this God's enemies? The liturgy gives us a clue. Two phrases, and many of you in this room know them by heart, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. Secondly, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You see, the fact of the matter is that this God has a very good reason to be angry. Look at all the injustice in the world, the theft, the greed, the corruption, the violence, the hatred. But here's the good news the good news of our liturgy, Christ's work on the cross takes care of it. Christ's work on the cross is full and sufficient. It satisfies God and takes care of the sins of the whole world. Why is this God so crazy? Why does he employ fuzzy math? Why doesn't he give Assyria what they deserve? Why does he pay the latecomers a lot more than they deserve in the, in the parable this morning? Why? One reason. The cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And friends, that's why we can pray a third phrase from the liturgy. Thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. 
Mercy on Jonah. Mercy on the Assyrians. Mercy on Matt. Mercy on you. And I want to close like this. In the Jonah story today, it says that God is gracious and merciful. These are words that come out of Jonah's mouth. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. By the way, that's a riff from the psalm from last Sunday, Psalm 103. When it comes to God's slowness to anger and his steadfast love toward Assyria, I ask you one more time, how can this be? When it comes to God's slowness and anger, slowness to anger, his steadfast love toward Jonah, how can this be? Is God just clinically insane? No. The answer is that his anger has been dealt with. By the way, is there such a thing as divine anger? I often hear people say smugly, well, I, don't, I certainly don't believe in a God of anger. Is there such a thing as divine anger? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that God is angry in light of the atrocities of the human race. I certainly hope that God is angry with the unspeakable deeds that we see on the news feed of, of YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, because those stories are now flooded with, for example, just example, I, for some reason I've, I've been thinking about a billionaire named Epstein who preyed on teenage girls, or think about Russia and the horrible atrocities that they are raining down on Ukraine, or what about the treatment of Mexican brothers and sisters and friends on the Texas border? I certainly hope that there is a cosmic force which will oppose such horror and atrocity. So yes, thanks be to God that the Bible says that God gets angry. But thanks be to God that his anger has been dealt with not by brushing the sins of Assyria under the rug, not by brushing the sins of Jonah or Matt under the rug, but by dealing with them, by dealing with them on the cross of his only son, the one perfect sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.